The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Today is special. It's Christmas, and so we're going to go back to the Christmas story and, and look at that very, very familiar passage of Scripture in Luke 2. We, we focused on the story through the eyes of the shepherds last night, and today I want to go and revisit the story as it played out through the eyes of Mary and Joseph. Um, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there, or if you've got a device, you can click to Luke chapter 2. And, and let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, so much that you came. What a gift. Words can't describe how precious this gift was. And it's a gift exchange, really, because you give to us and we give to you. So you, you get our rags, we get your riches. You get our sin, we get your glory. You get our stains and our past, and, and we get your righteousness, Lord. It's a, a glorious, glorious exchange that God so loved the world that he gave and Lord, we want to give you the gift of our attention in this moment. We ask, Father, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, enlighten our understanding, and cause us, Lord, to be enraptured by your goodness. We pray and ask all of these things together in the precious name of Jesus, God's only Son. And everybody who agreed said, Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and dive into our story. It says in verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. All right, so in these opening verses of Luke chapter 2, we're given the context for the story that's about to be told. And, and we're reminded here that Luke was a doctor, which means he was a guy that was given over to detail. And, and he includes a number of descriptive elements that set the time and the place for where these things occurred. They also let us know that Jesus' birth was an actual historical event that took place at a very specific time in history. And we know that because you can go back and you can verify the names and individuals that Luke mentions here. And, and, and you can verify through that through extra biblical sources. And in my mind, what that does is it just lends credibility to the whole story. I mean, Jesus birth account has all the hallmarks of, of a historical setting and a historical event. It doesn't begin with the words, once upon a time, or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> you know. No, there really was a man named Jesus. He lived and walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, and that's a verifiable fact. You can't dispute that. And something else you can't dispute is the fact that he so impacted history 
that we literally divide time by events that happened either before he came or after his birth. And so his birth stands as the dividing line for all of human history. And every time you mention the year or you write the date on a check perhaps or some other document, you are, whether knowingly or not knowingly, um, saying that Jesus lived the single most incredible life that has ever been lived. And so that's what's going on here. And the other thing that these verses do is they help explain how Jesus fulfilled ancient prophecy. So there are two perspectives at play here in verses one through three. There's, there's the earthly perspective, as it's seen through the eyes of Caesar, but then there's also heaven's perspective. Now, from the earthly perspective, it appears as though Caesar is the one who's calling the shots, and he issues this decree that everybody needs to return to the place of their ancestral birth so that they can be accounted for, and, and there are two basic reasons that a ruler would call for a census, and that is to know how many people he has in his kingdom, and secondly, more importantly, he wanted to collect taxes from all of those people. So what it appears is, is happening here is Caesar is flexing his political muscles, he wanted to know just how many people were in his kingdom and under his rule. His real name was Gaius Octavius. Caesar Augustus was a title that was given to him. Now, the, the name Augustus, rather the title Augustus, literally means majestic one or honored one or august one. This dude literally thought he was a god, and he was worshipped as a god. In fact, archaeologists not that long ago, they uncovered a statue that dates back all the way to this time period, and it's a statue of Caesar Augustus, and in the inscription under the statue, you'll read the words, Caesar Augustus, savior of Rome. And so that's the earthly perspective, Caesar, the savior of Rome. But let me give you another perspective, an alternate perspective. This is how God saw things. And from his vantage point, things looked much differently. You see, Caesar thought he was in charge, but in reality, he was just a pawn that God was manipulating and moving to position his children in the correct place so that an ancient prophecy could be fulfilled. Let me explain. Mary and Joseph were situated in Nazareth, but there was an ancient prophecy spoken by the prophet Malachi that said, I'm sorry, Micah, that said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, some 90 miles away. Let me read the prophecy to you. This is Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, yet out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old from ancient times. In other words, there's someone coming to you who predates his birth. <laughs> Jesus is the only person in human history whose his arrival on earth was also his departure from heaven. He is from ancient times of old, and yet he is sent to Bethlehem, who Micah tells us is a small clan among the tribes of Judah. In fact, it was, it was small, it, was, it wasn't really that important or viewed that way, and yet it was distinguished because it was the birthplace of Israel's most famous king, David. 
And according to the prophet Micah, the Messiah would come from that same place, the house of bread, Bethlehem. That's what Bethlehem means, house of bread. How fitting then that Jesus, who would say, I am the bread of life, would be born there in the house of bread. And so we see this juxtaposition here because Caesar thought that he was the man, but in reality, he's just a puppet. I mean, today, all that remains of Caesar is a halfway decent salad, whereas (laughs) Jesus is loved and adored by literally billions of people who worship him as both God and king. He might not have held a scepter, He might not have been attended to by servants at his birth, but make no mistake about it, Jesus was king of kings and he was Lord of lords, amen? Caesar may have been the savior of Rome, but Jesus is the savior of the whole world as the angels proclaimed. And by the way, let this be an encouragement to you because Jesus was born in the midst of a a time where there was political upheaval and there was turbulence in in the upper echelons of Rome and and there was a godless king on the throne who thought he was, you know, beating his chest and calling the shots. And, and, And maybe it feels like your world is in upheaval. Maybe it feels like things are spinning out of control around you, or maybe you look at the political scene, or you look at who's in charge of the various governments around the world, and you think, oh my Lord, this is a godless world, and your heart is burdened. Just take courage, take heart in the knowledge that God is the one who's calling the shots, and he positions men and women in places of authority to ultimately carry out his will. He did it in Jesus' day. He's doing it in your life as well. Amen. Well, so verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. Why? Because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. I mentioned this last night. I'll mention it again here that Bethlehem was a journey of about 90 miles from Nazareth. And and in that day, with their means of transportation that were available to them, that meant that they would be on the road for about a week. Mary would have either been walking or perhaps if they were lucky, she would have had a donkey to ride on. But either way, the journey was far from pleasant, right? But it wasn't just hard for Mary. I want, I want to shift your attention for a moment, and I want you to think about Joseph, because I think it was hard for him too. In my opinion, Joseph is really one of the unsung heroes of the nativity story. He, he doesn't play a starring role like, like Mary or some of the other characters, but he's still significant. And, and, and the Bible really doesn't say much about Jesus' earthly stepfather. But what it does tell us gives us great insight about him. One of the things that we read about Joseph is that he was a good man. And and it just seems like that sets him apart right there. There are fewer and fewer good men left around. So what made him good? Well, he was honorable. If you go back and look at our text, it says that he was traveling with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. Now, that's a non sequitur. They were pledged to be married. They hadn't consummated their marriage yet. They hadn't come together as husband and wife yet, and yet she's already preggers. (laughs) Can you imagine what that conversation would have been like? 
As Mary comes to Joseph, she's had this visitation from an angel, and she says, Joseph, I've got to share something with you. And he's engaged to her. They're madly in love. And she says, I'm pregnant. And he's like, what? Whoa. And she goes, it's not what you think. It was the Holy Spirit. And the baby in my womb is God. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. And he's thinking, what? No. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Back up. Let's push pause. How many young Jewish girls at that time were maybe using that same excuse to explain the baby in their wombs? <laughs> and yet, Joseph, he puts it in his heart that he's going to divorce her quietly. Why? Because he's an honorable man. He's a just man. He wants to do the right thing. He doesn't want to cause undue pain in Mary's life, even though she has betrayed him in the most intimate way possible. And yet, later on, Joseph receives his own dream, and in the dream, an angel comes to him and tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife and that she wasn't lying but was, in fact, telling the truth. Now, Joseph, when he woke up that following morning, had a choice to make, didn't he? He could have said, that was some weird pizza, moving on. (laughs) Or he could say, you know what? That wasn't just a weird dream. That was a God dream. And he had the discernment and he had the spiritual wherewithal to determine that that was the Lord that had sent this angel. And so he takes Mary into his home and and he hasn't slept with her yet, but they make this journey all the way to Bethlehem. But it still had to be difficult. And when they got there, verse six tells us, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Again, another part of the story that we're so used to and familiar with, Mary and Joseph arrive in town and Joseph is frantically at this point running from door to door and he's knocking on every home and he's saying, please, my wife is about to deliver and maybe at this point her water has already broken and so they're looking for a place to stay and he knocks on the door of this inn and we're not given the details of their conversation, but guys, can you imagine what it must have been like? I imagine that it was filled with heated, impassioned words as Joseph is fighting for his bride here and a place for her to deliver their baby. We, we don't know how that conversation went down, but what we do know is he was unsuccessful in finding them lodging, although he eventually did secure a stable. Now, now don't picture your nativity st- scene here, you know, the, the neatly crafted little barn. In all probability, it was more like a cave, or quite literally, a cave. Even the inn that he knocked on, it's not, don't think of a a holiday inn. There was no continental breakfast or swimming pool. No, the the word that is used to describe the inn, it it describes literally a, a shelter or a room of some kind. There was nothing to it. And we can sympathize a little bit with the innkeeper as he throws his hands up and he has a pitiful, exasperated look in his eyes as if to say, I'm really sorry, but you can see how many people are here for this census. What am I supposed to do? Every single room is booked. My hands are tied. And so we can sympathize with him a little bit on that level. But I think that misses the understanding of the cultural context. You see, you have to understand, I mean, it would be hard to overstate just how important hospitality was in the ancient world. It was not just considered nice, but it was absolutely expected at that time and in that culture for any person to go out of their way to help a stranger. And yet here we find a pregnant woman in labor 
and yet this innkeeper still refuses to give her room. Maybe you would push back and say, yeah, but I mean, think about it. If the rooms are all booked and if he's at capacity, what is he supposed to do? There's no rooms available. Ah, but is that really the case? Even if every other room was booked, there's one room he could have given her. His own, right? Well, the innkeeper wasn't necessarily a bad man. I think a better word for him would just be to describe him as busy. But that busyness caused him to miss out on what was the greatest opportunity that history had ever dropped in someone's lap. I mean, does anybody remember the innkeeper's name from the Bible? Can't tell me what it is, right? He's been lost to history, and he lost out on the opportunity of of being the, the guy who could claim, hey, the Son of God was born in my inn. Come stay here. It's twice the price, you know. <laughs> if only he knew who he was turning away. I mean, and yet I suppose it's fitting, right, that, that when God comes to the earth, that he would be rejected, that he would be turned away because it proved to be a precursor of the way that the rest of his life would play out. He was rejected by the politicians, whether it be Herod or, or Rome or Pilate. He was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. He was rejected by his own. And and by and large, Jesus was rejected by the very people he created. He came into the world, the Bible tells us, but the world didn't recognize him. He came unto his own, and his own didn't receive him. I mean, think about this fact. God, when he came to earth, was homeless. There's that story where a person approached him and said, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus cautioned him. He said, be careful what you're asking for. The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Jesus was telling us that he was homeless. And even to this day, it still seems like there's, there's no room for him. Jesus gets pushed out of every arena and sphere of life. He's even being pushed out of Christmas, which is just odd. I mean, in our own Poway Unified School District, which is a phenomenal school district, and yet they won't let the teachers decorate anything to do with Christmas. You can't have trees or you can't say Merry Christmas in a lot of places. It's been replaced by Happy Holidays. They don't even call it Christmas break at school, but it's winter break. And, And it's like we're trying to remove Christ from Christmas, which is just ridiculous. There's no room for him. There's that great Christmas song, Joy to the World, and one of the lines in that song says, let every heart prepare him room. And I like the way that's phrased because it reminds us that we have the same opportunity that the innkeeper had. We can make room for Jesus in our hearts, and while the rest of the world might reject him and push him to the side, for those who receive him, the Bible says he gives the right or the privilege to be called the children of God. And here's the greatest news. If you'll make room for Jesus, he'll make room for you. You see, amen, amen. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus is there in the upper room with his disciples, and he says to them, you know, you believe in God? I want you to believe in me also. In other words, I want you to believe in me with the same degree of faith that you believe in God. Why? Because he is God. And he said, in my Father's house are many rooms. (laughs) If it weren't so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a room for you that where I am, there you may be also. If we'll make room for him in our heart, he'll make room for us up there. 
I want to close with this thought. There's a picture, there's, there's a couple of things going on here, but all that we have time for is to just talk for a minute about the meaning of the manger. Because Luke really belabors the fact that Jesus was placed in a manger. It's mentioned three times in this story that Jesus was laid in a manger. Luke zooms the camera in and he wants to focus on the manger. I, I'm, 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 I'm struck by this thought and I, I believe that it really astounded Luke that God would condescend and be placed in a manger. I mean, it's obvious to see why mangers aren't cribs. We pointed this out last night as well. They were feeding troughs. And so what does the manger speak to you and I? Three things. Number one, it speaks of humility. Can't get much more humble or humbler than a feeding trough. And this reminds us of what Jesus did when he left heaven. I love the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter two. He says, though he was God, yet he made himself nothing. And he took upon himself the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. You see, the the Christmas story isn't a rags to riches tale, but rather it's a from riches to rags tale. Though he was rich, he made himself poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. And the manger tells us about that humility. Secondly, oh, no, no, I wanna wanna focus on this a little bit more. I forgot this. So does the, the swaddling clothes that he was wrapped in, right? I mean, if Jesus is God's gift to us, then I think it speaks to us that he wrapped his son in, in, in very basic, plain wrapping paper. Now, it was Christmas morning. I hope many of you opened gifts, maybe some last night, maybe some of you are waiting until after uh, the service, but, but we opened presents. And it is funny to note the differences between the way that men and women approach wrapping gifts. And you can tell right away the presents I wrapped versus the ones my wife wrapped. And by the way, she does most of the wrapping. Um, and, and for her, it's like an art form, and it's, it's like a thing of beauty. You don't even want to open it. It's so pretty. Meanwhile, mine's just like duct taped together. <laughs> Why? Because it's all about what's on the inside. And it's funny, too, to note the differences between the way men and women open gifts, right? It's a very, for women, a lot of times, it's a delicate process, like you're saving the paper. Or I don't know. The, the bow gets placed over here. It takes like 25 minutes. For the guys, it's just, just get to what's inside. <laughs> and how fitting then that God sends his gift to humanity wrapped in the most simple wrapping paper. I want to read to you this quote. It's from the book Grace Notes. It's written by a guy named Philip Yancey, and he writes this. In Jesus, something new happened. God became one of his own creatures, an event unparalleled, unheard of, in fact, in the fullest sense of the word. The God who fills the universe exploded to become a peasant baby who, like every infant who ever lived, had to learn to walk and talk and dress himself. In the incarnation, God's son deliberately handicapped himself, exchanging omniscience for a brain that learned Aramaic stroke by stroke omnipresence for two legs, an occasional donkey, omnipotence for arms strong enough to saw wood but too weak for self-defense. Instead of overseeing a hundred billion galaxies at once, he now looked out on a narrow alley in Nazareth, a pile of rocks in the Judean desert and a crowded street in Jerusalem. Wow. The manger speaks to us of his humility. Secondly, it speaks to us of our, or rather his, accessibility. 
There's nothing intimidating about a manger. (laughs) You don't need an ID card or credentials to get to a manger. (laughs) Typically, the more important someone is, the more inaccessible they are, right? So if you're trying to get to the President of the United States, you don't just stroll into the Oval Office, but there are a number of security measures that you have to pass through, and there are background checks, and there are metal detectors, and there is a secret service, and you're probably not even going to get on the books. But again, you don't have to do any of that to get to a manger. I mean, the shepherds just left their fields and walked right up without passing through a single security checkpoint. And that speaks to us that just like God was accessible then, he's accessible now. And he's accessible to each and every one of you. You don't even have to stand in line. You don't have to make an appointment to see him. Hebrews 4.16 is a powerful promise, and it says that we can come with boldness to the throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's not a throne of anger. It's not a a, a throne of hostility. It's a throne of grace. And God says, come boldly. Why? So you can obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. You have access to God. And thirdly and finally, Not only does it speak to us of his humility, not only does it speak of his accessibility, it also is a fitting picture of each and every one of our hearts. Why? Because a manger is not a pretty thing. It's it's not a perfect thing. It's not a polished thing. It's sin-stained. It's gross. and, And in a lot of ways, it's a place you'd rather avoid. Yet if our Savior was willing to come and make his home, if you will, lay in that manger, then I think it speaks to the fact that he's willing to come and make his home in the manger of my own heart. (laughs) Because my heart is a dirty place. It's a place that's sin-stained and gross. And and there are a lot of things in there that I'm embarrassed by and ashamed of. But but the Lord, he's willing to come down. He climbs in, and he cleans it out. (laughs) And I'm so thankful that Jesus came, aren't you? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time that we've had to just sit in your presence. Welcome to the family room, guys. This is how we do Christmas. We just, we remember our Savior. We remember his love. Love gives. Love does. It's not static. It's not stale, but it moves. God's love for humanity moved his heart and led him to send his only begotten son. And we remember in this moment that the work that started at Christmas was completed at Calvary. And Jesus, it could be said, was the only person whose main purpose in being born was to die. That's the main reason that Jesus came. He was born to die. And we see a picture of that in those swaddling cloths that wrapped around him for it would be about 33 years later that he would be wrapped in other cloths, grave garments. But those grave garments couldn't contain him. Death couldn't hold him. The hell, hell couldn't stop him. The grave couldn't keep him because our God defies death. He defeats the devil. He raises triumphantly over the grave and his victory is our victory. His righteousness is our righteousness. 
His life, his power flows in our veins. His Holy Spirit resides in our hearts. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the living God who condescended and made his home in Mary's womb and then was birthed nine months later. He'll make his home in each and every one of our hearts as we open them to him, as we're humble, as we're surrendered, as we say, God, I have need. I have nothing to offer you, but what I have, I give. And so say, what can I give the God who has everything? And I think a fitting gift would be our hearts. I have nothing to give but my heart, and it's the only thing that you want. So you can have it, Lord. Take my heart. Take my life. Take my future. I give it to you. I surrender my heart. I surrender my life. I give you my love. I ascribe glory, honor, praise. You are the highest. You are the greatest. You are my all in all. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.